For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet author Jennifer Ashley, also known as Ashley Gardner and Allison James, and find out how she balances three prolific best-selling writing careers across three genres. Stories That Soar presents a short tale that many of us can relate to, written by a second grader. And I'll talk with Benjamin Lohr about the fascinating research behind his book, The Secret Life of Groceries. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Before the internet made communication between fans easy, small regional conventions were the only opportunity to share news and opinions about books, art, and films focused on the realms of the imagination. Tuscon was founded in 1974 by a small group of dedicated fans in Tucson, and now it attracts some of the most famous names in science fiction, fantasy, and horror as guests. The organizers decided to keep it going this year online. The 47th annual Tuscon is happening Saturday, November 14th, with a full day of events. The author guest of honor is prolific, best-selling writer Jennifer Ashley. You may also know her as Ashley Gardner or Allison James, because she writes across several genres, including fantasy, romance, and mystery. Ashley has written more than 100 novels and novellas since first being published in 2002, often at the rate of five or six a year. I started by asking Jennifer Ashley how it came to be that she now leads three literary lives. I did not choose to have pen names when I went into writing. Um, I first published under Jennifer Ashley, which is my real name, actually. Then I got a contract with two different publishers almost at the same time, and and I really had no idea this was going to happen. And one of the publishers said, well, we can't use your name, Jennifer Ashley. Um, Publishers do not like to share. So we came up with the name Ashley Gardner because I was writing mysteries for Berkeley. And actually, I was okay with that because the mystery series were different. It's a little bit darker. There, there's no, it's not a romance. It's, it's very different. Um, and then I, I took a third pen name because I wanted to write a little bit more off-the-wall stuff. I took Alice and James, and I wanted to write some uh, what's called urban fantasy and things like that. And I was afraid that, you know, I would be really bad at it, and it would. I, I didn't want to destroy my, my other names, so I took the third one. It made my career a little bit complicated because now I have to build, like, three different followings. But it does help me a little bit because when someone picks up an Ashley Gardner, they know they're going to get a historical mystery. Um, I've got one set in Regency England. I've started one set in uh, Ancient Rome. And when they pick up Jennifer Ashley, they know they're going to get a different book. So in that way, it's kind of a branding thing. But I never started out in my dreams of becoming an author. I never thought, oh, yeah, I'll take three pseudonyms and do this. It just kind of evolved. Beyond the genres that you write in under your different names, do you have sort of stylistic rules set for yourself? Is there ever something you think, oh, no, Ashley wouldn't say this, Jennifer would say this? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Mostly it's the type of storytelling. 
like I have a cook in Victorian London in a mystery series with that. Uh, and that I wouldn't say in that book what I'd say in, say, my contemporary paranormal romance, even though I'm writing those two under the same name. Like I have a, a series as Alison James where I write an urban fantasy, as I say. It's a, a woman who has powers connected with storms, and she lives in northern Arizona, and it's, it's really cool to play with that. But that'll be similar to the paranormal romance I write as Jennifer Ashley. There's a lot of similarities there. So it really has to do with more the series than the names, because when I write it, it's just me. When I think about historical romance or mysteries, I think of the enormous amount of research that yes. a good author should do. And now you just mentioned a character who's closely tied to meteorology and Arizona climate. So, yes. like, there's a whole nother field. How do you know when it's time to pull your head out of the rabbit hole of research and put it on the page? I tend to research this constantly. It's all the time. I learn a lot of fascinating things in my research. I read widely. I just learn constantly. But, yes, comes the times where we have to say, okay, this is all very cool, but now I have to put this in a story. The story should dictate how much of the research should land on the page. You really shouldn't say, I just learned all this cool stuff. I need to put it in this book and, and at, at the expense of the story. That's really hard because <laughs> I want to share all this stuff that I've learned. And even then when I'm writing, I still like make a note to myself, like check this fact, make sure it's actually right. You, know? you have a very prolific career going. And I want to know, when did becoming a published author really seem like an attainable goal to you? I mean, I'd always wanted to be a published author when I was very young, and I, I got a library card at age six or something. And, and I'd go to a library, and I'd see all these books, and I'd be like, wouldn't it be really neat if one of these books was by me? And so I, I kind of worked my whole life kind of with that goal in mind, kind of a you know, far away, distant goal. And then I met a couple of authors who were published, and, and I said, well, you know, it's not, it's not some faraway ideal. It's, you know, it's real people actually doing this. And I realized one day that if I just sat myself down and tried really, really hard and seriously went for it, I could do it. Now, I still got rejections and rejections, and, of course, a lot of times it just felt like, you know, I'm spinning my wheels for no reason. One of my sayings is persistence pays off. And I said, I just am going to keep going for it until I achieve it. And I finally did. And I was really shocked when I did. It was, it was, it was a wonderful day when I got that call. Well, Jennifer, uh, you're doing this appearance with the virtual Tuscan this year, which happens on November 14th. But you also shared with me that you are on deadline right now and yes. that you were willing to carve out a little bit of time for our interview. <laughs> So deadlines, I mean, I have them too every week, yeah. slightly different in nature, but how do you deal with deadline stress? Um, what's a strategy you use to help you successfully meet the many times you're required to hit these benchmarks? <laughs> well, one thing I do is I make myself get enough sleep, even if, you know, I could stay up another five hours and, and finish my quota for the day. I do make myself just go to bed. For one thing, it, it, what I write in my sleep is going to be terrible. And another thing, I really need <laughs> to be fresh to continue. I also exercise. I walk or run almost every morning, and once a week I do a one-hour strength uh, training with a trainer. I didn't used to do that, and my health deteriorated because of it. So now I am adamant that I keep exercising and I sleep and I eat well. I don't eat a bunch of junk food. I eat healthy meals. 
and that has made a huge, huge difference in deadline stress. Also, um, I have the ability to just say, okay, the deadline is here. I have to put aside everything else in my life, including my poor, long-suffering husband, and just do the work until it's done. And then, because I know when the work is done, I can reward myself with, you know, doing something fun and taking a day off, which which is rare. I rarely take a day off. And, you know, getting more sleep. <laughs> so yeah. I kind of uh, entice myself with rewards and I just say, okay, it's time to suck it up and do it. So that's really how I deal with deadline stress. But it is stressful, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Tuscon has such a great reputation as a literary science fiction convention. And, of course, they've embraced fantasy and other genres as urban fantasy has grown. And also a field that you're associated with, paranormal romance. And I want to talk about how imagination fires your work and what kinds of places do you want to take your readers who want to read a paranormal romance story? I grew up kind of reading fantasy science fiction. I, um, that's my background is that it, I actually never read a romance until I was well into my 30s. And I said, hmm, what's this genre? Um, and, and I liked it enough that I wanted to, you know, try to do some writing in it. But I originally wanted to be a sci-fi fantasy author. Um, I want readers to kind of really believe in this world. And my paranormal romance is my my most famous series is one called Shifters Unbound, and it's about shapeshifters who live in the normal everyday world, but everyone knows they're shapeshifters. But I said, I just said to myself, you know, if someone came out and said they were a shapeshifter and could actually do it, what would people's reaction be? Would it be like, oh, this is cool, or would they be terrified? And I decided a lot of people would be really terrified. So they've put a lot of restrictions on these shifter people and they make them live in these places called shifter towns, kind of like reservations. But I wanted it to be extremely realistic, but yet at the same time, of course, the fantasy element there where um, there's some magic and I, I do have them you know, going to another world. The fey world is important in this. I really want to take readers on that, you know, to make everything extremely believable but at the same time, you know, they, they know it's, it's <laughs> fiction. Well, how do you put yourself in the mindset of writing, even though this person still has, I assume, their normal intelligence and emotions? Mm-hmm. How do you sort of think about how that transforms once you're wearing a different skin? When you have two characters who are involved in a relationship, even a romance, mm-hmm. um, how do you write about that? The thing is, is everybody in the world has a relationship with someone else. Uh, that can be a sexual relationship or a parent-child relationship or a brother-sister relationship or a best-friend relationship. Everyone has one. So in romance, the relationship is a very, very, very important part of the story. In fact, I mean, it's a pivotal part of the story. It wouldn't be a romance without it. So when I write paranormal romance, I do have to balance between – I have a lot of action-adventure in my, in my stories because I, of my fantasy background. It's based, they're basically fantasies with romance in them. Um, but you do have to put the relationship front and center. And I do have challenges, like if there's a human woman with a shifter man or vice versa, they have to d- learn how to live in each other's worlds, which is, you know, what we all have to do when we meet that special someone. We know it's very interesting, you know, what this person does and what, what the other person does and how they come together and how they 
choose to either change themselves or not change themselves or meet the challenges of being with this other person, how it changes their lives. And I think that's the fascination of romance, is it's how people are changed by a relationship. Author Jennifer Ashley will be the guest of honor at this year's virtual Tuscon Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention, happening online Saturday, November 14th. You can find a link to the complete schedule of guests, panels, events, and dealers on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Jennifer Ashley told us that her journey to becoming a published author began at age six by using her imagination in her local library. In this community, the nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of artists who are dedicated to helping young writers get started by showing them the power and possibility of bringing their stories to life. It's called Stories That Soar, and next we'll hear a tale written by Jan, a second grader at Los Niños Elementary. It's called The Monster Who Wanted to Play. Once upon a time, a monster wanted to play. The monster wanted to play. He saw some birds. as they could. Monster was sad. He still wanted to play. He saw a small lake. He went down, wanting to play. The monster saw fish. But the fish swam as fast as they came. The monster was sad, but he still wanted to play. He saw a dog, but the dog ran. The monster just wanted to play. Birds flew, fish swam, and the dog ran. Monster was sad and said, It's not my fault I'm a monster. That was written by Jan, a second grader at Los Niños Elementary in the Sunnyside School District and produced by the team at Stories That Soar. Interested writers in the kindergarten to high school age range can submit their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. Chances are good that no matter where you live or how you feel about the pandemic, your relationship with your groceries has gone through some changes. More than five years before grocery store employees became classified as essential workers, 
author Benjamin Lohr began exploring the stockrooms, warehouses, and factories that make up this country's most complex supply chain. These places are usually kept far from the sight and mind of the average shopper. Lohr's book is called The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. That title reveals just a little of how this consumer revolution forever changed how Americans live and think. In some ways, the whole world kind of went through the revelation I went through when I started the book. I think the book was very much rooted in this fascination uh, with the grocery store based on kind of recognizing just how important it was to -to day-to-day life. And it wasn't this banal chore. It was actually this uh, vital institution that was responsible for a lot of feeling of privilege. So, you know, with coronavirus, I think that hit home for everyone else as well. Uh, All of a sudden, we realized this was a vital, important link in our lives. Understanding how these systems were founded and built is crucial to understanding how they might break down. So I think that your book is extremely valuable today. And um, one of the major threads that runs through it is the story of Joe Colombe, who a lot of us know by another name, but his story is really integral to how the entire concept of groceries has transformed over the last century. So Joe, uh, founder, CEO of uh, Trader Joe's grocery store, he really exists as this character in the book that illuminates both the kind of fundamental drives in the industry, and then through his kind of visionary opposition to those fundamental drives, um, how the industry, you know, actually functions. He, he almost like serves as a way to put things into relief because he made some choices that were very different from a lot of the grocers of his era. The approach that Joe was taking to groceries in the late 50s and early 60s was just, it was so forward thinking that it helps us understand where the grocery world comes from and a lot of the fixed mindsets in that world. There's a really humorous aside from his wife, Alice, about how when their children were young and Joe was first building his business, he would go and check out every grocery store, every drug store, every general store in the area. And they would send their children in, and Alice says they would reward the children with one item carefully chosen from any, any retail outlet, but they had to report. They were spies. She calls them agents. And she says, no one is more observant than a child on a mission. <laughs> yeah. And I think that aside, and there are a few others like that in the book, get, give a general sense of kind of the decency that Joe brought to the grocery world. I got the sense talking to him and Alice that it was really a family endeavor, that Alice was someone who was involved in this. There's other you know, stories of they would chart and do demo, early like demographic surveys of the area, and Alice would make sure to like put one child on either side of the back seat, and see, she would say, like, this would have been impossible if we had, had three kids because they would have been arguing over who gets the window. Uh, but we were allowed to like have our children work as demographers in our car, noting whether or not houses had boats or what type of cars were in the garage to kind of guesstimate income, uh, all based on employing their kids um, as amateur surveyists. 
Well, one of the things I learned from your book was that at one point, Joe's financial and, you know, retail future was threatened by a deal involving the Southland Corporation. Now, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and 7-Eleven was really prominent. You could buy bullets. You could buy ammunition at um, (laughs) 7-Eleven. I think that it's really interesting how in the story of groceries, you find time to point out the origins of things like convenience stores and also like mega food marts and how they evolved. And we take them all for granted now, but things were so different at the beginning and from like turnstiles and almost military fencing uh, to, to corral people into the store and things like that to the way that um, the name Piggly Wiggly originated. There's a lot of great history about the beginnings of what we now take for granted in the grocery store. That's what made the book fascinating to me. I think for me as a nonfiction writer, in general, I'm looking for these places where you can scratch the veneer of reality and find some richness beneath that. Uh, and it's funny that you, you would zero in on Southland. They sold bullets and so did Trader Joe's actually. Um, the original Trader Joe's did big, big volume in bullets. It was actually a product Joe loved because it was very small and high-priced, and it was kind of a scientific retailer. So the the high-density products that took up very little shelf space but sold for a lot of money uh, really came to define the store. And if you look at a certain goes now, in many ways it follows that with nuts are high-density per-price product, vitamins and supplements are, uh, and of course Trader Joe's is really big on that, and same with the frozen aisle. Um, But the 7-Eleven was a a great example of someone who had a, a eureka moment. In Dallas, at the turn of the century, ice was big business, um, as it was everywhere, but especially in Dallas, where it's extremely hot. And so ice stocks existed as kind of a, a retail edifice that people could come get the ice for their house, and, and they were enormously popular. And people would take their ox-drawn carts and go up to the ice dock, and they'd chop off some ice for them and, and go on their way, a little bit like a gas station today. But, of course, this was before the combustion engine was, was widespread. And one of these owners of an ice dock thought, hey, if I start selling watermelon and produce here, um, and a customer like per- perhaps apocryphally asked, I wish the general store was still open. I wish you could sell me some eggs. Um, and this light bulb went off. If I do that, I'll be able to round out this business that was now seasonal into a year-round um, endeavor. And the convenience store was born. And, you know, and really the convenience store becomes extremely important to the, te- to the story of Trader Joe's because Joe started out as an owner of a fleet, fleet of convenience stores. And it's only when 7-Eleven, the big behemoth, invades his territory uh, that he has to get into groceries writ large because the convenience store is a game where you're selling very similar items and truly the, the most important Part of your balance sheet is your real estate opportunities. And Joe knew that a company like 7-Eleven with their massive bankroll would get the best real estate deals because landlords were always going to want them. He evolved by going sideways and deciding not to compete with bigger and bigger chains and not to grow uh, bigger and bigger in the direction that would become Walmart and would become Amazon. So, Benjamin, one thing I've noticed about modern retail strategies involving the Internet and social media is the desire to make you a more active consumer. An example of that would be a savings club you have, but you have to go online first and choose the savings you want to apply for and put them in your cart, and then you can go and pay at a discount 
but you had to do that work to bump their social media numbers. What's your observation about this and how the onus of saving and bargains is put on the buyer now so much more than the seller? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And it speaks to both kind of a misconception I think a lot of people have about grocery stores. I think a lot of people walk around with this mental model that like supermarkets are kind of designed to fatigue them and trick them into buying more. So there's this trope that the milk is in the back and the eggs are in the back and you have to voyage into the store to get those. You're going to have to pass through a lot of different items to get that. Um, And I think that that's really antithetical to the way most modern grocery stores are set up, which is very much around convenience and trying to get people in and out as quick as possible if they want to go in and out as quickly as possible or provide a little closer to what you're getting at, some type of positive energy-giving experience. If you look back at the seeds of the supermarket and how it evolved from what was at one point just a gen- what known as a general store, which was kind of this hardware store-like place with sold boots, it sold drugs like opiates and laudanum, <laughs> it sold a, a small amounts of fresh produce, if at all, but some probably some preserved fruits and barrels. But all of that was generic. All of that was, was in an anonymous bulk. And it was all not something that the customer could actually touch. It was kept behind the counter and the grocer, you know, in his apron would kind of dole it out. And the supermarket was really born when a gentleman named Clarence Saunders decided to let customers touch the products and sift through them. And there was a, there's a large backstory that I go into the book with that in terms of packaging and, and, and the fact that the cardboard box gets invented around this time, canning becomes um, far more efficient production of glass, prices fall. And that all allows these products that were once sold in bulk to be put into individual products. A label gets plastered onto them. They get an identity. And all of a sudden, the customer is now on a mission that involves choice and involves work. And that means that they can put meaning into what they're doing. So buying the right product becomes an act of love for your spouse or for your children, instead of just one choice, go there, get it, go home. And so the programs that you're talking about, I think, are really about getting the consumer to participate in that meaning-making endeavor. That's a clever strategy because I think a lot of us as consumers are looking for that meaning and we place a lot of meaning on food, whether we acknowledge it or not. My guest was Benjamin Lohr. We talked about The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket, published by Avery Books. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.